Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 9. I'm just going to read a quick proverb, Proverbs 22, 9, and it says, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. And that's going to lead into our New Testament study. If you can just kind of now go forward to 2 Corinthians 9, you'll see the tie-in there. Because the last time we covered the generosity model for believers. And today, in chapter 9, we're really going to see a continuation of that paradigm. As we go through chapter 9, we're going to see that it's really a further elaboration of chapter 8. And for those of you who were uh, new, what we do in the Calvary uh, way is what we do is we go through successive books. We go through every book in the Bible line by line. So if you're with us for 10, 15 years and you come out on a regular basis, what you'll find is after about 10, 15 years, you'll know the entire Bible. Now, your memory may be an issue, (laughs) but at least you've learned it. So we're going to jump in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, starting with verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, The Apostle Paul says, For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your bountiful gift beforehand, which you have previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Just to help you a little bit with the geography, Greece originally started out as city-states, and then Philip of Macedon, and then Alexander the Great, if you know your Greek history, did a lot to bring these city-states into a unified Greece. But at the time, you know, the Romans had conquered and they, they div- divided things up, etc. So you had a basic understanding of Macedonia was northern Greece and Achaia was southern Greece. And at the Peloponnesian Peninsula, right, there was an isthmus of Corinth. So that church sat right there in southern Greece, right? So what you see, too, is um, this is the fourth category. Again, if you were here for chapter 8, Paul spoke about three categories uh, that, that really uh, related to generosity. And today, we're, we're on the fourth category. It's the readiness in giving versus empty promises. So basically what happens is that at this time that Paul was writing, a year ago, he had said to the uh, Corinthians, hey, the Jerusalem church is really struggling. We've covered that in the scripture. And uh, they really need a collection. They're really having a hard time. So the Corinthians got excited and they said, yeah, yeah, collection efforts, let's do it. They were so enthusiastic that now the Macedonians in northern Greece, now they were impoverished. They really had little. But they were so excited and so moved that they also took up a collection effort. Well, here's the problem. A year later, Corinthians still haven't finished the collection efforts, and the Macedonians have already moved forward. So if the Corinthians didn't follow through, it would have been an embarrassment and a disappointment to the collection efforts. And this is a timeless message. Because if we say we're going to do something, and the Bible is replete with exhortations to follow through. You know, we all know someone who talks big. They talk a lot and they make a lot of boasts. But making promises and not fulfilling is not a good thing. And especially if it has to do with furthering the Lord's kingdom or making promises in essence to do ministry for the Lord. So Paul says this, it's superfluous for me to write to you. You know, I shouldn't have to write to you guys. You know your obligations. 
And in verse 4, he says basically that it would be shameful and a disgrace for the Corinthians to not follow through with their collection efforts. It would be, number one, a bad witness to the Macedonians, and it would have made Paul look bad after boasting of them. And you see the ripple effect when we don't do something that we say we're going to do. Now, James 4.17, I love this. Let me just digress for a minute. We always worry about the big sins, you know, the sins of commission. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't do those things. But we forget about the sins that we commit, the sins of omission, where we fail to do something. God specifically told the children of Israel that they needed to stay devoted to him, and they failed, and they suffered as a result of it. So what happens is, James 4:17 says, to him who knows to do good, has the means, and does not do it, to him it is sin. So there's the sins of omission there. And sometimes as believers, we're responsible with our jobs and our families. But you know, when it comes to ministry or things to the Lord, ah, they'll forgive me. It'll be okay. I can show up late. It's not good. See, we have it backwards. See, because God's not right there in front of us tangibly. So we're more afraid of what people are going to think than what God thinks. So we fail in our obligations. So it's, it's definitely more important to make a commitment to follow through with the Lord than even your secular uh, obligations. And sometimes... Some of us get stuck in, I think of a gear shift. You ever see those gear shifts on the console? Park, reverse, neutral, drive, second, first, right? Low one, low two. And people get stuck in P. I call it getting stuck in pray. There are some Christians that any need that comes by, I'll pray about it, I'll pray about it. That's all they say is I'll pray about it and never do anything. They're stuck in P. Sometimes as believers, it's an excuse not to help. And listen, let me say this, that we should always be praying. And you could imagine in my position, I pray about things before they happen. I'm like, Lord, when that big decision comes down the pike, oh, Lord, I just need you to help me to make the right decisions. Don't make me mess anybody up. But sometimes we need to get out of P and get into D, go into drive, get off of our butts and help because it's the right thing to do. I'll tell you a humorous story. A friend of mine is a pastor, and he officiated at his daughter's wedding, all right? And he does the ceremony, and they go to the reception. So my pastor friend gets up during a reception and says to his son-in-law, when am I going to have grandchildren? And the son-in-law responds, well, we're praying about it. And the pastor responds, you're going to have to do a little bit more than just pray. (laughs) Remember that? (laughs) Verse 6. What are you, a little delayed action back there? (laughs) But I say this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here's the fifth category, principles in giving. You reap what you sow. And this is a common biblical biblical maxim that we apply to many things in our lives, and rightly so. And again, back in those days, Many, many were simple folk, you know, simple farmers, and they used, you know, Paul, Jesus, Peter, they used simple examples so everybody could get the message. And this is a picture of agriculture, once again, you reap what you sow. If a farmer sows his seed sparingly, well, he can save some money, but his crop's not going to be as big. But if a farmer sows seeds bountifully, well, certainly, you know, the law of mathematics, he's going to get more of a crop. So Paul takes this and it applies it to generosity. The one who's generous will never do without. We see this especially in the Proverbs. The one who's stingy will reap sparingly, and the stingy receive a few blessings. And I shared with you, I like to poke fun at myself. I think that it is a good 
to be self-deprecating. It keeps us humble. But I talked about my life before a believer and how stingy I was. I would have a list and your name, Bob, would be on it. You owe me $2. And I would go around making sure, I know it's embarrassing. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I would collect that money. And I never knew why I still didn't have, I lacked. But it was only until I became born again and um, God worked on my heart and I became generous that I've never lacked. Now, I'm not telling you that my house is a mansion or I have, you know, buku dollars in the bank, none of that stuff. But I've never done without. God has always blessed me. So I, I'm firsthand proof of that. Here's something interesting. In his book, uh, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, he was haunted in his childhood by the suffering that he saw, the poor, uh, people with no food, no clothes, no uh, proper nutrition, things to that nature. And it really had an effect on him so much that when Charles Dickens grew up, he wrote this book, right? A Christmas Carol. And what's interesting is he was so affected by it that the embodiment of all the stinginess was personified in Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, if you've ever read the book or saw a movie made off of it, it's very impressive if they do it right. Not only is this guy stingy and a miser, but his, his heart is even cold. He can't even find himself to have compassion for others. So he's the embodiment, the personification of this stinginess. Now, the prosperity movement, prosperity gospel is kind of an oxymoron. It's not biblical. But the prosperity movement will take this to mean that if you give, you have a promise of millions, of financial abundance. All of you can be millionaires. You see, a lot of this stuff borders on mysticism. Have you ever heard of positive confession? Just believe it. Just picture yourself in that CEO's office day after day, and one day, boom, God will reward you. You'll be the CEO. Well, what if, I, I just like, I like logic and simple mathematics. What if there's 20 Christians in the firm and only one person can be the CEO and they're all doing this? <laughs> 19 people are beat, right? It's not good. The secret came out. You know, Oprah Winfrey uh, glamorized the secret. This, this, again, there's a lot of mysticism and Gnosticism that's working its way into the church, and Christians are buying into this. And some religions are completely built around this whacked-out philosophy. It's wrong. You see, we have to digress to motives for a moment. If our motives are wrong, then we miss the point then it becomes all about us in the end. In other words, think about this. All we want are those millions. All we want is to be the CEO. All we want is that mansion. So what we do is we read the Bible and it says to give to the poor and God will bless you. So the whole idea now is to use the poor. You see, if we follow this, we don't care about the poor. We're just using them as a means to an end to get a personal fortune. That's what it becomes, can't care about the poor. We miss the, the complete point if that's what we're looking at. And that's a hard issue. On verse 5, an alternate translation here is he says, be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. That Greek word that was taken can be also translated according to Strong's Concordance. Check this out. Now to really open your eyes. Number one, avarice, fraudulence, greedy, covetous. You get the point. So when we do things, it shouldn't be because we are just so wanting those millions that we'll use anybody, no matter how to do it, a formula to get what we're looking at. You see, this is what happens. When you follow that doctrine, basically, you whittle God down to one thing. He stands there with his arm out, and you put quarters in his mouth, and you keep pulling his arm until you get the... He's like a heavenly slot machine. How many people find that illustration offensive? I do, too. But that is, you see, there's such a smorgasbord out there of beliefs that you can follow. 
If you want to be rich, you can follow the prosperity movement. You know, if you um, want to feel that you're special, you look at Reformed theology and say, I'm the elect. If you look at, you see what I'm saying? It's called emotions-based theology. Depending on what you're looking for, that's the doctrine you'll follow because it suits your needs. No, 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 that's backwards. See, we read God's word and do what it says and follow and get in line with it and change our behavior and our thinking accordingly. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Verse 5, he says, don't give out of compulsion. Now, that eliminates the pulpit-pounding wallet emptiers. Give, give, give. Take your wallet, your handbag, and dump it into the plate. That is not scriptural. Not at all. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Again, in here, there's a lot in here. Cheerful. The Greek word for cheerful is hilaros, where we get the word hilarious. But, But let's not make a mistake here. Some will take that and run with it. If you look at the etymology of words, right, how they change over time and root words and things to that nature, hilaros means cheerful, joyful, and merry. See, if we, if we got our checkbook out and we're taking that pen and we're really pressing hard and say, man, if it wasn't for these poor people, I could put an addition on my house. And you rip it off and you give it to somebody. You know what God says? Keep it. You need it more than I do. You, you know? You completely missed the point. God is not impressed by that. Wrote, unheartfelt um, religious duty. Not, not good. Missing the point. And we can also apply reap. You reap what you sow in other areas. It's kind of the biblical version of what comes around or goes around comes around. How do we treat people? How do we establish relationships? Do we pour into others? Do we reciprocate? Are we thankful? We touched on it before, right? Hosea 8.7 says, if you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. You reap what you sow. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Emphasis mine. The remainder of this is the sixth category, the promises in giving. Right? God will always give us the power to get whatever we want. No, it doesn't say that. He will give us the power to further his goals. And it goes back to glorifying God. We don't glorify ourselves. We glor- That's what we exist for. What do we exist for? What do we have purpose? To glorify God as believers, to shine his light, to radiate it. Number one, it says this, that grace may abound towards us. God shows abundant grace to generous because they reflect the Father's heart. And two, to be all sufficient in all things. Sufficiency means just that. Sufficiency, though, in Christ, not in any external thing. Too many believers live a life of insufficiency. They haven't realized the victory in Christ in all things. See, we live in the talk show generation. When I was a boy and I started growing up, everybody I knew was just watching some type of talk show or another. Um, When my wife and I go to the gym, you know, she's on the, the thing, the stair stepper, and I'm doing something else, and I have all these TVs. And we go in the morning, usually nobody's there, and it's, it's us, and it's really neat. But the, I remember hearing a lot of noise from the TV, and I looked up, and she looked up, and it was the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> First of all, who would go on that show? You're telling the world, I'm dysfunctional. There's something wrong with me. You know, I don't live a normal life. If you, that's not something to be proud of. That's something to repent of and turn to God for. But it's a, a life of dysfunction. The, you know, there are even Christians that live a life of victimhood. Because it's popular to be a victim now. You can claim some type of, of victimhood and, and, uh, and you know what? It's good for getting attention. And there are Christians who, who, listen, we have victory in Christ. 
If we live our lives as the eternal victim, we're missing what the Bible says, right? And that sufficiency is, is available to every single person who's a believer. You can have that sufficiency in Christ. And sufficiency is not a wish list. See, some get discouraged that they're, well, my prayers haven't been answered. You see, again, God is not a celestial Santa Claus. Whatever we wish for, God's going to give us. God will supply our needs, but the Bible doesn't say that God supplies our lusts. There's a difference. I prayed and prayed. Well, if you pray, Jesus said, ask anything in my name. Well, what does that mean? It means all we have to say is the word Jesus, and that's the postage stamp that goes on the prayer, and it shoots right to God, and then you're going to get a return package? No. In Jesus' name means in Jesus' character. You see? Ask anything in my name, anything that pleases the Father, that's, that has a good, uh, godly principle attached to it, that it's in, in harmony with what God wants, right? Sometimes if our prayers aren't being answered, we have to look within ourselves and see what's going wrong. And the third point, an abundance for every good work. God has designed the born-again believer to do good works, and it should just come naturally. You see, we give not so we can say, everyone look at me. We give because of who we are and who God has made us and how he's grown us, right? I'll give you an example. If you had a leak in your house and your room was starting to flood and it was starting to go down and, this, you know, some of you experienced that, I'm sure, and you call a plumber and the plumber gets there and he fixed the leak, the plumber doesn't go, did you just see what I did? Praise me, I did a great job. Hey, that's what a plumber does. He fixes leaks. As Christians... What we do is we are designed to have an abundance of every good work. The Bible says that faith without works is dead, right? Is dead. Verse 9, as it is written. Now here he turns, if you don't have a Bible with this, italicized to Psalm 112, and he quotes it. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. Paul backs up this concept with Psalm 112, and if you read Psalm 112, there's a lot to it, but basically, number one, man reveres the Lord. Number two, man is generous to the poor. And number three, that man reaps the spiritual benefits. And verse 10, he says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Again, agricultural example. The one who supplies the seed and the bread, of course, is God. Right? Every good gift comes down from the Father in heaven. And the spiritual implication is that our spiritual crop, a fruit of righteousness and continuing of good works, will increase. Now, I just want to digress to um, Isaiah 55, two verses, 10 and 11. It's a great scripture. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. He says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Again, not unlike that sown seed, God's word does not come back void. And we saw Jesus' parable of the sower. We see that too. What happens when you sow that seed? A lot of fruit comes from that. Not every way, but you know, we are to con continue to sow those seeds. Sow those seeds bountifully. So you see a lot of applications here. And another caveat there is that we need to bless others 
aside from those that we love and those that can give us in return. Jesus said that. He said, even the heathen do that. They give gifts. They expect another gift back. I invite you over for dinner. I expect you to invite me over for dinner. You know, I buy something for your birthday. I expect to get something for my birthday. Jesus says, listen, even the heathen do that, and they do it well. I want to read something to you that I I came across. It's a, a short portion of one of the daily breads on December 7th. It's titled, War Then Peace. It says, on December 7th, 1941, a Japanese warplane piloted by Mitsuo Fushida took off from the aircraft carrier Agaki. Fushida led the surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Through the war years to follow, Fushida continued to fly, often narrowly escaping death. At the war's end, he was disillusioned and bitter. A few years later, he heard a story that piqued his spiritual curiosity. A Christian young woman whose parents had been killed by the Japanese during the war decided to minister to the Japanese prisoners. Impressed, Fushida began reading his Bible. As he read Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He understood that the woman, how the woman, could show kindness to her enemies. That day, Fushida gave his heart to Christ. What's amazing, too, is the, and the name escapes me, the son of Hamas, who eventually came to the United States, uh, uh, you know, the family, devout Muslim, the whole neighborhood, started reading the Bible. And uh, Romans 10, 17, the word did something to him. It's regenerative. And he gave his heart to Christ. And he's renounced his former ways and his former religion. Pretty impressive. Becoming a lay preacher an evangelist to his fellow citizens, this former warrior demonstrated the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, a peace enjoyed by those who have trusted Christ and who let their requests be made known to God. Talk about generosity. This is an uncommon generosity for this woman who lost her parents in an untimely death by this man, okay, went and ministered to the Japanese prisoners, and because of that generosity of the heart to minister to others, who they had no expectation of getting anything in return, this man now who led the attack becomes a preacher, right? Amazing stuff, how how God's economy works, you know? And, and you know, um, Isaiah 55, you really see like the precipitation cycle, you know, the cycle. And this is God's precipitation cycle. It always works, right? Okay. Again, it's who we are. Verse 11. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Again, we see this spiritual cycle. I love science. You know, even when I was a kid, and maybe I didn't pay attention to a whole lot, I really like science class, you know, chemistry and, and physics and all that. But in science, there's this theoretical machine called the perpetual motion machine. You ever see those, those uh, chrome balls that are lined up on a string, and there's like six of them, and you lift one on the other one, let it go, boom, and it hits the five of them and the last one comes off and it comes back and it does this bump, bump, bump. Who's got time to look at that all day? But I mean, the bottom line is eventually the balls stop. They come to rest. Why? 
because of friction and gravity and things, scientific terms. So a perpetual motion machine, something where you put an initial burst of energy into it and it goes on forever, doesn't exist on this planet. However, God can do anything. And you see God's perpetual motion machine. He enriches the obedient believer. Two, the believer now in turn blesses the needy. Three, the needy turn and praise God for this. Four, some turn to him. And five, the process starts all over again. And this can go on forever because God can do it, right? And verse 13, this is the proof, right, that God's ministry is real and the believer is truly submitted to God and received his power, that we practice what we preach. And verse 14, and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, the needy will pray for the generous, which, which promotes an interdependence among believers, which sometimes lacks in the American church. And that's why the American church is in such disarray. You see, and I've, I've quoted the statistics to you, how many are coming into the pastorate and there's a net loss of those leaving the pastorate. How many churches are being planted and how many are closing, okay? So this is a condition that you have in the Western church. Uh, and I'll say this, in our fellowship, in any fellowship, there are those that are just not, it's a social club to them. They're not submitted. They're not in prayer. They're not coming out to the things they need to come out to, right? So... I'm going to tell you this, I'm warmed, my heart is warm, warmed when some of you just come up to me and you just say a few things to me, Pastor Joe, we're praying for the leadership here. You don't know how good that makes me feel. Because if we're not praying for the leadership, we're dead. Close the doors, it's done. Got to be praying for the leadership. Chuck Smith, who started uh, the Calvary Chapel, said there was, he had this, this core group of elderly ladies who would constantly pray for the church. They didn't make a big deal about it. He heard it through uh, some other means. But these women would be constantly in prayer for the leadership of the church. So I'm teaching you, but you need to pray for me. I mean, how many pastors have fallen into sin? You need to pray for me to guide my, my mind and my heart from temptation. You need to pray for me to make good decisions. See, it's an interdependence between all of us. And we all work together as the body of Christ. And we covered that in 1 Corinthians. If part of the body is going one way and the other party is going the other way and our body is splintered, the body cannot function properly. There's no homeostasis. So you see this concept of interdependence among believers. Verse 15, last verse. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And this is really the linchpin. This is really the uh, foundation and the focal point for everything else, right? We read a lot about thanksgiving in this section, but foundational is ultimately the thanksgiving that is a result of the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And how could we not be thankful for what God has done to us, for us, through his son Jesus? We don't like unthankful people. But you know what? It's even more offensive to God when the world rebuffs his free gift of salvation. Let any man come, anyone who thirsts, whosoever would believe on him. God says, listen, the whole world can be saved and, and come into my kingdom. But the choice that they make not to, and that's offensive to God. There's only one way to, to, to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. So God is the ultimate giver in, in the giving of his son. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. He put out the olive branch, right, to us. And I'm going to ask one more question. Um, and this is really going to wrap up the last two chapters that we covered, chapter 8 and chapter 9. And I asked this the last time. I said, what is it that we have today that we can't lose tomorrow? Our health, our loved ones, 
our money, our security, our home. What is it? We saw the book of Job. We've seen the parables. What is it that we have today that we can't lose tomorrow? And the answer is everything is fair game. I think the Bible says that. So to try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. And the next question that tails off of that is, what is it that we can gain today that we can never lose, that it can never be taken away? Jesus said a few things. Number one, he said, with your unrighteous mammon, with your resources, build for yourself eternal habitations. And what he basically was saying was, whatever you've been blessed with, use it to further God's kingdom. Jesus also said this, do not lay up for yourself earthly treasures where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. You see, those type of treasures, they can't be touched because God's got your back. He's got everything secured. And this open to every single one of you. Those heavenly treasures, they're, they're good, you know? And God gave his son Jesus to us. We have the promise of eternal life. We have the promise of eternity to be spending with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and each other for those of us who have trusted Jesus. Jesus said this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again, once again for your word. We thank you that no matter where we are in the